Hello and welcome to the 9th Rory O'Connor podcast, published on the 3rd of October 2018, about ayahuasca, about my own relatively recent experience of it, and for those who've never heard of it, about what it is in the first place. What it is, I guess, basically, is an especially powerful psychedelic, although I'm going to question that word psychedelic later in this introduction, and what it's famous for doing is inducing very powerful visions and feelings that can make people rethink their lives and often to show them a painful element of their lives, for example, so as to be at peace with it and even to suggest elements of their future path in life. To that end, it's been used with a good deal of success to treat addictions, but it's also used in a phrase that's going around at the moment for the betterment of well people. The visions you see can be very beautiful, can be at times quite frightening, but always they are very intense. Quite often people see jaguars and dragons and snakes, which makes sense, some of it, seeing as ayahuasca has its origins in the Amazonian basin. In different ways, I did see dragons and a snake. There's also, though, a great variety in what people see, and the maxim is that people see what they need to see. But whatever you see, as I say, it's always very intense in terms of its immediate effects and also, at least potentially, in the way people can continue to see the world. I guess you could say that ayahuasca is trendy at the moment and it might induce some eye-rolling for me to be talking about it. How do you know if someone has taken ayahuasca? They tell you. The main deep soul change ayahuasca brings is the inability to shut up about it. I think these are pretty good one-liners on Twitter, but but I also think that people are right to be enthusiastic, and this podcast is pretty much an outpouring of enthusiasm about ayahuasca. It doesn't always have great ambassadors, though. For example, Mike Cernovich is a Trump-supporting social media personality who rose to prominence on the back of the Pizzagate conspiracy theory, and he's recently been hymning ayahuasca. The main proof ayahuasca isn't the magic substance people say it is, is that Mike Cernovich took it, and he's still Mike Cernovich, reads another tweet. Which is funny, but if ayahuasca shows you what you need, it also seems to be true that it takes you from where you are. Cernovich said that he felt a bit more at ease with himself, and I don't think we should begrudge him that. Ayahuasca is normally taken, and one is strongly advised to take it, as part of a ceremony. These generally happen over the course of a night, with the shaman, that's a Eurasian word, but it'll do, helping attendees if they encounter any difficulty, in part by singing songs called Icarus. The shaman actually takes ayahuasca too, so this is pretty different from a European view that a responsible person should not be taking the brew. But the point is that the shaman is supposed to be able to pick up the specifics of the difficulties a person is having, and to know how to help by receiving information you could only get in the state of consciousness ayahuasca brings. I absolutely cannot say that I know this to be true, of course, but I do know there's enough spooky stuff in the world, and I generally trust that people with a good deal of experience in a topic know what they're doing, that I believe the shamans know what they're doing, and I take them at their word. But I'm mostly going to be talking about my experience of ayahuasca, which has lodged in the memory and been of lasting benefit to me. 
That's the fun part of this podcast. But first, I generally, but first, I probably need to give some context: historical, how it's made, medical warnings, the law, and so on. As I say, ayahuasca comes from the Amazon, where it's thought of as a medicine. It's been brewed there. It comes in the form of a liquid substance since prehistorical times. No one can say precisely when it was first brewed, although archaeological evidence of the use of other types of psychoactive substance in the Amazon dates back to 2000 BC. The brewing process is that sections of the bark of the ayahuasca plant, which is a vine that grows around Amazonian trees, are boiled together with leaves from any of a number of other plants. In my experience, one called Chakropanga, which is a member of the coffee family. By the way, their names are Banisteriopsis capai for the ayahuasca vine and Diplopteris cabrerana for the Chakrapanga. Now, Chakrapanga, or the other leaves, actually contain the psychoactive molecule, the molecule that gets to work on your brain, which is called dimethyltryptamine, DMT for, for short. So you might think that the brew should be called Chakrapanga or whatever. But what the ayahuasca vine does when boiled with the leaves is make it so that the DMT can be assimilated by the brain. If the leaves were boiled on their own, the DMT would be broken down, metabolised immediately on entering the stomach, so it wouldn't have any effect on the brain. How the ayahuasca vine helps is that it contains what's called a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, which shuts down the substances in the stomach that would metabolise the DMT straight away. And that allows the DMT to enter the blood and eventually to break through the blood-brain barrier and to take effect in the brain. Normally in Europe and North America, uh, when pure DMT is taken, it is either smoked or injected into the bloodstream. And these methods apparently give rise to blisteringly intense visions lasting between five minutes and half an hour that apparently people often have trouble making sense of. But when the DMT is taken in the form of the ayahuasca brew, the visions usually last between four and six hours, and as an experience can contain elements of being told and shown a story that makes a funny kind of sense. And also you're able to kind of communicate in some ways with what you're shown in a way that's much more difficult in 15 minutes. When the visionary effects have worn away, feelings ranging between elation and a very good mood can last for eight hours with a further kind of glow, afterglow of that happy feeling for up to two weeks, I would say. As I say, ayahuasca has been used to good effect in the treatment of addiction. I'm just going to go through some of the academic study that has been done. Uh, rough research from Exeter University and University College London, with undoubtedly some problems of methodology since it was self-reporting, showed that there were lower levels of alcoholism and depression for ayahuasca takers as compared with those who had taken LSD or magic mushrooms. In June of this year, an academic paper in the journal Psychological Medicine demonstrated a rapid antidepressant effect after a single dose of ayahuasca in people who had otherwise been treatment resistant for depression. But the main research on DMT was done by Professor Rick Strassman in New Mexico in the early 90s. One of his standout findings was that those taking part in the studies had a lack of tolerance to the psychological effects of repeated closely spaced doses. In other words, it's not psychologically addictive. Or as was said recently by Joe Rogan and Michael Pollan, who has written a book about the psychedelics this year, published this year, called How to Change Your Mind. 
the first thought after having a big psychedelic trip is not, when can I do this again? Right. It's um, whoa. It's I mean, whoa. The yeah. last one I had, I was like, I don't know if I could do that again. Yeah, that I felt my, that my way face. every time. It's like yeah. childbirth or how, how we hear tri- childbirth is. You, yeah. you can't imagine doing it again. And eventually you do, you do do it again. And ayahuasca isn't physically addictive either. For one thing, famously, it causes you to vomit, which is what indigenous Americans call, politely call the purge. And as far as they're concerned, it's one of the medical uses of ayahuasca for getting rid of parasites and so on. And it can also cause diarrhea. So yes, let me say, I did vomit in the preparation of this podcast. And maybe this is as good a time as any to say that if you enjoy the podcast, you can show your appreciation by pledging me as little as a dollar per episode at patreon.com slash Rory O'Connor. Because there's no limit I will not go to to bring you the most important stories. The vomiting unaccountably does put people off taking ayahuasca, or as I would prefer to say, participating in an ayahuasca ceremony. But all I can say is that if you're put off by that, good. Because most likely you would have far more testing things to deal with in the visions that come after. The last thing I'd say about medical matters, and I hardly need to say that I'm not a doctor, is that ayahuasca is strongly counterindicated, that is, do not do it for people taking SSRI to antidepressants because of a risk of serotonin surge. And also because blood pressure is lowered um, and there are symptoms like dizziness and so on, it's not recommended for people with heart problems. The law is another thing, and I have to say that I managed to stay in blissful ignorance until I did the research for this podcast, hoping there was some way that ayahuasca was legal. I'm afraid not, but the legal history is actually pretty interesting. It seems DMT was first banned under an international treaty, the Convention on Psychotropic Substances, in 1971. What the writers of that treaty would have been thinking of was synthesised molecular DMT, which was first produced in Germany in the 30s. Uh, Then national governments that signed the convention passed laws to give effect to the treaty. And in Ireland and the UK, these are the Misuse of Drugs Acts which made DMT class A drugs, despite the relative lack of harm that I've been talking about. The first prosecution and subsequent legal process in Europe involving ayahuasca was in Holland in 2001. The Santo Daime Church, which has its origins in Brazil and is a kind of syncretic mix of Christianity and indigenous religion, uses ayahuasca as a sacrament, but it had its ayahuasca seized. Uh, The church actually successfully argued in an Amsterdam court that Article 9 of the European Convention on Human Rights, which guarantees the right to manifest one's religious observance, protected its use of ayahuasca, taken together with the fact that the government hadn't demonstrated any harm from its use. So while ayahuasca is technically illegal there, the law is not in force. And while this was going on, the Dutch government sought the advice of the uh, UN body that monitors the enforcement of the Convention on Psychoactive Substances, Psychotropic Substances, uh, which actually wrote back that as far as it was concerned, ayahuasca was a, de- was a decoction containing DMT rather than the thing itself. So it wasn't prohibited under the convention. And it may be that it took that view because ayahuasca is legally protected in a number of South American countries. But the courts in all the English-speaking countries, unfortunately, have disagreed and taken the view that ayahuasca is illegal since it contains DMT. I'll just mention that in Ireland, a fellow named uh, Marcus McCabe has been before the courts twice for possessing uh, in ayahuasca with intent to supply. The first time after a raid into, of a ceremony in 2008. Um, 
on that occasion he was originally fined 5,000 euros but that was appealed down to 300 euros and the judge seemed to have learned a lot about the nature of ayahuasca in the meantime and he recognised that McCabe wasn't your average drug dealer. Also no one at that ceremony was brought to court for possession. There was actually a Supreme Court challenge to the outlawing of ayahuasca as a result of that conviction based on the same religious freedom grounds that would have been relied on in Holland since McCabe is also a member of this Santo Daimi church which seems like quite a fun organisation. I wasn't actually able to find anything directly about that challenge but I guess it must have failed because he was in court again last December when he imported the brew through Dublin airport. I'm guessing customs officials get push notifications on their phones when he comes in. This time the judge struck out the case with a warning that this does not give you a licence to carry on. Apparently the judge asked a guard if ayahuasca was harmful and the guard's mealy-mouthed response was that it's an illegal high judge. So that's the legal situation. But as I say, nobody has been uh, even brought to court for uh, for possession. As I say, I was going to say something about what to call it and what how to think of it since I was going to quibble with the word psychedelic. Psychedelic means mind or soul manifesting, which is fine as far as it goes. It does confront you with bits of your mind, your fears and so on, but it also bypasses the mind in interesting ways. There's a term from the 1970s, entheogen, which roughly means generating a sense of being filled with the god, which tips the hat to the spiritual function ayahuasca has played, but it also has the same root as enthusiasm, as you can just hear from the sound of the word. And that's appropriate because ayahuasca does generate enthusiasm, not just about it, but about all of life. And there's another recently coined term, ecodelic, which struck me, because as you'll hear, I did get a stronger sense of nature during the weekend I spent at an ayahuasca retreat, if you want to call it that. The one term I'm really not mad about is hallucinogen, because it doesn't feel like a hallucination, it feels like an extra layer of reality. But of course, I can't quite prove that. Anyway, you get the idea. It causes you to have hallucinations. What? I'll be glad to explain it to you. It's a sort of a nightmare where your dreams go pell-mell, helter-skelter, and amok. Ah, oh, shut up. Pell-mell. Hello, Inspector Clancy speaking. One Wednesday in March, I called a friend of mine. She'd moved to England at the beginning of the year for work, and the last time I saw her before she went away, she told me with a stirring gratitude that she had attended an ayahuasca ceremony in November. Always apparently confident in herself, always with a sheer trust in life, you only know otherwise when she tells you, she exuded those qualities even more that January evening. It was great to see, and I was heartily glad for her. I have to say, I was also thinking, some people have all the luck. Because like a growing number of people, I had for quite a while thought that the descriptions of people's experiences with ayahuasca that I heard on the internet were pretty captivating, of reckonings with the difficult elements of one's life, of journeys to parallel realms. I want that, I thought, long before my friend had even mentioned it. I remember doing some cursory internet searches regarding what the situation was in Ireland and finding chat rooms where nobody else knew either and also a Facebook profile with no Facebook prof- with no profile picture. I didn't get in touch because it all seemed a bit impermeable and exclusive, and anyway, could I trust these people? But it did remain a background wish, and as my friend told me, that's what it had been for her too, until she got the chance. And maybe, in lots of cases, that is what you need for ayahuasca eventually to come to you. 
When I called her in March, it was the first time I was doing so since she moved away, and I didn't actually get through to her. But late that evening, I got a text saying, and of course I'm changing their names for the legal reasons I've mentioned, that Shama and Luke and Helen would be in Ireland this weekend. I remembered their names straight away. You need to seize this opportunity, my friend texted. I hope I would have done so anyway, that I wouldn't have found some stupid excuse not to, or let a mental fog of delay make it too late before I took any action. But the way she put it, that steely sentence, you need to seize this opportunity, meant there was no other option. Money is pretty tight in these times for me, but for some reason that I couldn't figure out, the previous day I received more than, as far as I knew, I was due to have from, let us say, a certain government source. I'm not saying it was necessarily more than I was entitled to, but it was more than I knew myself to be entitled to. I was surprised, but naturally I hadn't questioned it. And now I wish I had, because either way, in retrospect, it has the ring of sympathetic magic. And my call to my friend and her texted response also feels like magic. All I can say is I'm glad I called her for the first time in months that Wednesday, rather than the following Wednesday. So, on Friday afternoon, I got the train to the home of my friend's mother, in a mid-sized Irish town. She too had attended that ceremony in November with her daughter, and I believe gladness for her experience meant she was glad to get me to the right place. She fed me a lovely meal of fish and potatoes, which I ate out of more than politeness, although I couldn't help thinking I'd be seeing it again soon. As I ate, I was watching the Ireland Turkey football friendly with her partner. If he was going anywhere later that Friday, it was not to an ayahuasca ceremony, maybe to a pub, and I don't think he had any idea about what it was or what it involved. My friend's mother and her partner drove me to the house where the ceremony was to happen very kindly. The last thing my friend's mother said before we got out of the car was, If you feel like you need to vomit, don't wait, just go. And then I said a kind of customary customary good luck to her partner, and he just said, Sounds like you're going to need that. An antique computer, a shabby office desk, a filing cabinet, and lots of other clutter had been shunted to one of the walls of the room where the ceremony would be held. There were mattresses right along the length of two of the walls, and a fire was gently keeping itself warm in the fireplace. In one of the corners was a table where Luke, it had to be him, was sitting. We briefly said hello, and then his intent concentration quickly went back to his phone, on which he was playing word games, which made me think of my mother, who plays Scrabble online. His partner Helen, by contrast, was all busyness, organising the room, greeting everyone like long-lost friends. She was dressed in a low-key, hippieish fashion, head to toe in brioche bobbled knitting. Mentally, I did put her in a certain box and then instantly judge myself for that. A man from Eastern Europe ascertained it was my first time taking ayahuasca. We got to talking about meditation somehow and he said he had not done meditation before his first ayahuasca journey, but that after that it was just natural to do. A friend and compatriot of his told me I would see how much work Luke did during the ceremony. We were all milling about between the ceremony room and the kitchen, and I picked up that everyone there to attend seemed to be male, and then Helene made a comment about that. I felt a bit uneasy about it. Everyone was nice and gentle, but we were an ugly bunch of lads, and it all and I felt a bit sad. A little lustre had worn off the adventure. Maybe I need to be clear here, it's not that I was thinking of chatting up women or anything like that, just that according to my own anxieties and limited way of reading things, I felt like I had accidentally, but quite appropriately, ended up attending a sad sacks conference. I'll get back to the men later, but I just want to talk about this bit of paranoia that I was feeling. 
Surely it is paranoia if the idea only plays around in your head, if you don't believe it and wouldn't defend it, but if you are just willing to entertain the proposition, and might be more seriously willing to entertain it if there was more time in the day, that life is against you. Not people, mind, who are quite nice whether they are real or not, but some structure beyond them and you, whose outworkings would also, to a great extent, include your personality and stupid actions. If at times a malevolent god implanting small hopes and letting the programme continue towards painful disaster just seems like as possible an explanation as any of the state of things, not more, not less, but from time to time also in your feelings like a racing certainty, and the only reason not to mention it in speech is that convention tells us not to, and that of course, as part of the programme, there will never be enough evidence for it, at least until it's too late to say it with conviction. Surely that feeling is paranoia. So certainly I want to confess that I've felt paranoia from time to time in recent years. And this feeling had descended on me again, mild and manageable as ever. And then, when Helene's work was done, Luke's word game concluded and we were all lying on the mattresses or sitting against the walls behind them. The ceremony began. Luke spoke about the indigenous people he first started to learn from, the Muisca, who are 15,000 strong, who live in the centre of Colombia, near the capital, Bogota. And he spoke about the people he has most recently begun to learn from, the Kofan. There are only 2,000 of them, but they're among the most vigorous protectors of the rights of indigenous people, living at the very bottom in the southwest of Colombia. And there were other tribes too. I can't remember from which tribe he learned their cosmogony, the story, their story of the Earth's coming into being that he told us, and which I can remember some of. Humans are said by this particular tribe to have come into being after a peace between four different types of creatures who previously were all at war with each other. There were the people of the sun who sought only spiritual glory, who were directed towards the heavens. There were the Saturn people, the Saita, who mined the Earth and took its resources back to their planet. There were the Ogomo who minded the earth, were the earth's tenders, and also Cro-Magnon man who sought to hunt, dominate and reproduce. And we humans are said to contain two genes each from these four peoples. I think that's a great way to look at us, to be honest. Two genes each. Balance is all important to the peoples of the Amazon basin. We would be receiving the Yahe. That's what the Colombian tribes call ayahuasca, yahe. The name ayahuasca comes from Peru, where you find advertisements for it at the airport in a way that you don't in Colombia. So naturally, ayahuasca is the more famous name. But I will mostly call the brew yahe from now on, and I'm going to languidly English that to yage. So we would be receiving the yage, which came from the earth, and it was best to do it with gratitude. And we ought to give back too, since we receive from the earth constantly. And according to Luke, we would begin in this when we vomited later on. That, the vomit, would be gratefully received by the earth. Received gratefully and the bad feelings would be transmuted and balance maintained. By now, I had stopped fretting. We were all listening closely and there was a kind of different energy in the room. And that was the point of Luke's speaking, to get us to tune in to bring a certain concentration in everyone there. And maybe Luke was tuning in to us too. My friend swears that Luke picked up that she would need to go outside during the night to see the stars. 
while he was talking. Harmine, which is one of the monoamine oxidase inhibitors in the Yage vine, was originally known as telepathine. But let's lay aside all those claims of spooky action at a distance for the moment. In a phrase that's really stuck with me, Luke said, You will get a knowledge or feeling, as though the two words meant the same kind of thing. He actually had worked for years in a recognised profession and knows as well as anyone that we don't normally consider knowledge and feelings the same things. But he said that the way that the Amazonian people can see even those living in big cities in South America is as people always searching for knowledge without seeking the type of knowledge or feeling that alone could help to decide what was worthy to pursue in the first place. And when Luke is working in a ceremony, he is using precisely a knowledge or feeling to help him in assisting attendees. While he was talking, Luke had passed around coca leaves, which we put on the left side of our mouths, and ambeel, a thick tobacco paste, which we rubbed onto the right side of our mouths, using what I think was a jaguar's tooth. And now, the last thing before taking the yage, Helene used a pipe to blow snuff tobacco right up our noses, and it felt like straight into our brains. My head felt extremely fresh and clear. I could absolutely believe what Luke said, that two weeks of having this snuff tobacco shunted up your nose had cured psychoses, had brought people back to reality, as he said. But its function that night was to make us open, to clear our heads, so as better to receive the visions. Luke called this snuff tobacco Opahosca, but it's most famously known by its Brazilian name, Hape. And maybe it was while Helene was clearing our heads using Opahosca that I saw Luke quietly intoning while looking at the brew, which was contained in ordinary two-litre plastic bottles, the plastic looking a little tired and worn, and again keeping going intoning. As he had said he would, he was now calling to his masters, the Yage men and women who had taught him, and who even this very evening would be protecting him, and by extension all of us attending, if we encountered any danger in the parallel realms we would be visiting. These masters, his masters, are called Taitas, which means fathers, and abuelas, which is Spanish for grandmothers. Indigenous custom is a bit more conservative in Colombia than elsewhere in South America. Women need to be old before being recognised as worthy to speak about the world encountered in Yage. But Luke had actually first learned about Yage from an abuela, who had told him to be gentle with people participating in his ceremonies, but especially with Europeans. Luke advised us to take at least two cups of Yage that night, but that we were welcome to take as many as we wished. To pour a cup for us was a blessing for him. Now the electric light was turned off. The main light now came from the fire. And one by one we approached Luke's table. People who had taken Yage before knelt down to receive their cup, which was followed by a drink of water. I remained standing as Luke passed me the cup and said, Receive all the blessing. Depending on how it's made, Yage, ayahuasca, has a reputation for having a foul taste, but this was not at all bad, like fermented cocoa, slightly sweet, kind of cocoa-y kombucha, I thought. And then we waited. I can't actually remember purging after my first cup, although I'm sure I did. What I do remember is that I started to see a very small white light dart about the room, from left to right and up and down, like a pong ball, but it felt a bit more magical than that sounds. 
and when I closed my eyes, squares and circles of colour exploded in my vision, the so-called psychedelic colours, orange, red, cyan blue, pure blue, parakeet green. They were all emerging from a black background. Famously, this is described as being like a computer screensaver. Someone after my second night described what she saw as being like the lining of a suitcase. As hackneyed as it all may sound, both to people who have and haven't met these colours with a new intensity on taking an entheogen, coming across this for the first time in personal experience, I felt grateful. Oh, it's that thing, was what I was thinking. The colours are probably the most famous thing about psychedelic experience, but it was new to me and it was already felt worthwhile. I believe that they are a kind, gentle introduction designed not to overwhelm you to a world alongside the everyday one. After some time, I got up and took a second cup and again waited. It feels a little like ordinary alcoholic drunkenness when you move around having taken Yage, and even at the time, it was pretty funny seeing everyone outside looking and feeling terrible as we purged when we knew what we had signed up for. I went into the kitchen to get a glass of water after the purge. I was a little restless. I was thinking of my brother and I was thinking, yeah, it's been interesting, but will I recommend this to him? Not so sure. And I would tell him to try it, but not to expect too much. I was getting a little frustrated that whatever was supposed to be happening wasn't happening. And I feel a little bit ashamed of all that now. I walked over to the stove and my attention was grabbed by a decorative plate hung on the wall above it. It was a mandala. If you don't know what a mandala is, do Google it and you'll recognise the kind of thing I'm talking about. But the definition is a geometric pattern that symbolically or metaphysically represents the cosmos. This one, which after all was just a decorative plate, was not as intricate as Buddhist mandalas, but it was pulsing with life. The lines that came out from the centre and looped in on themselves were moving in their given pattern like a snake moving around but not going anywhere, like an Ouroboros. And as it moved around, it was reflecting light afresh with each scale on its body. I would not normally have thought of a patterned decorative plate as being at all like a mandala. This was all a bit much, and feeling ever drunker, I sat at the kitchen table and put my head down. And then I truly began to be stunned. The colours were ever more intense. I began to have a great delight in seeing them. It's like they convey more life. And there were also these little people in the vision. These little people, I've since found out, are often seen in visions. The famous and famously semi-reputable advocate of psychedelics, Terence McKenna, made them famous and called them machine elves or fractal elves which are less ridiculous phrases than they may seem. And I've heard it said that what the elves are doing is holding our reality together and helping to further create it. But this was my first visionary experience. I had no idea what to make of them. I had no idea it was a common thing. And instead, my attention was being focused on, in every sense, the heart of the matter. Because the little people and the colours were accompanied by a feeling of great love. I can only call the feeling of being loved that came to me shocking, something I couldn't have guessed at. I could not have known it possible. It was of a piece with the feeling of connectedness we might have in daily love, but also beyond it. And both sides of that binary are valuable. The daily love is kind of of a piece with this beyond love. I can only say that I was being forced to drink this feeling in.
but this loved feeling was the background reassurance I needed for the tougher things I was soon being confronted with. For a number of years, I've often felt physically pathetic. A traumatic chain of events was followed by hair coming out in clumps, and often uneasy in my physical being, that feeling ramped up now at the kitchen table. Sitting at the kitchen table, feeling in part like a common drunk, I was touching my hair and feeling sensitive about the lost stuff. I felt ugly and old. I touched my face with my hands and it felt thin and worn. I was given the feeling that all those anxieties were true. I was also put in touch with my anxieties about love, relationships, about being wanted, wanting, all that. With all these anxieties, I would normally skip on from them in my thoughts, through various means. Reading, drinking, work, running, sleep. But now I was being forced to feel them. All I could do was lie on the kitchen table and deal with the feeling of being a human slug. Actually, now and then, right throughout these visions, when things got too intense, I would raise my head and have a stunned look around the perfectly normal kitchen. And then my head would go down again. Hard to take as what I was seeing and feeling was. It was enthralling. When things got a little too painful again, I would sometimes find myself saying, I know, I know, and things would soften a little. And sometimes, out of nowhere, because it's not a sound I'd ever made before, I would say, um, going, um, seemed to make whatever was being brought to my attention bearable, maybe even to integrate it somehow. My attention was brought to my family and parents. I did think now, my brother has to do this. More spookily, and slightly contradicting what I thought about my brother, I was certain my parents and my siblings all already had done this, that I had been the laggard, and that there would be a new understanding between us now that I had caught up. Now, obviously there was an element of the delusional there, at least as far as I know. It's not a topic I could have been able to bring up at the dinner table. I guess this... Uh, this misapprehension that they, had all, that they had all already done it could lead people to dismiss the whole experience. If Yage can mislead you that way, what real value can there be in it? All I'd say is that this is another aspect in which you have to take the rough with the smooth. In a Yage trip, people can believe they're Jesus. But what harm is there in that if they come out of it, as they so often do, with a little more feeling of love for all humanity? or just a sense of how they normally fall short of that love. In my case, I was left with a renewed sense of my family as eternal souls, if you like, not just my family, and most poignantly for me, my parents. Another thing, I have an interest in astrology, or rather, I entertain an interest in astrology without needing a proof for it. I just pay attention to it on those days when it turns up something striking, as it had that Friday because almost the last thing I did before leaving Dublin was to check where the planets were that day in relation to my birth chart, what is called my transits. Now, on that day, Mars, which represents vigorous experience and great action, was sat right on top of where Neptune, which represents the dreamy and the visionary, was when I was born. So we get a vigorous experience of the visionary and the dreamy, which is a pretty apt description of what was happening for me that night, especially seeing as that alignment only happens once every two years. But now, in my consciousness, astrology was being made highly contingent, was being smashed up, rendered useless. 
And this was a nice reminder that whatever astrology might say about my personality, or more importantly, whatever I might say about my personality, was useless. Whatever I was, whatever I am, is, was, different and more, even than I seemed to myself to be. Also, and relatedly, I was shown a map of Europe, the ebb and flow of its political borders as the Second World War progressed, and was given a reminder of the pain of both the war itself and of the Nazi dominion, what I felt was a befitting sadness. For a few years, I've guessed that things could get pretty chaotic in this century. I don't like a historical panic because political life has always been pretty brutal, but in a sense, things already are getting a little more chaotic, and we're going to have to respond wisely and well, with our hearts in fact. But what these two things, astrology and the Second World War, have in common is being part of the time system, and in the plane, coming to meet me now, time as we experience it was not of the essence. Pragmatically, we can have no conception of what eternality is. All I'll say is that I had the sense that it is not to be discounted because of our lack of imagination, not to be feared, not to be thought of as boring even because of our failure to conceive it. I remember very clearly the sense that my becoming, I would say anyone's becoming, or evolution if you prefer, would be a very long journey, an infinite journey, and that this night, taking the yage was a fresh start. When I am finished with one stage of doing and being, there will be another. This was exhilarating, not daunting, though certainly very vast and challenging. It was a very, very hopeful thing. Whatever rut we might find ourselves in, there are always more challenges and things to believe in and act for in life. The feeling that can come, that life is a one-way ticket to the burial place with added distractions, is not a reality. Life is not stale, but an adventure. And while time is perhaps not of the essence of things, it is valuable. The deepest part of this experience was a kind of ratification, or maybe you could say a recapitulation, of a decision I previously made to be myself, strange as that sounds. During this part of the vision, I felt like I could deeply explore actually being another person or people that I could enter into a wholly other experience. And this was an ecstatic experience in all senses. I was very happy, but the word ecstatic comes from the Greek for to stand outside oneself. I could have stood outside myself. The possibility was met by the logical objection that I would no longer be me. I was still very excited by this mixing and merging, this sense of absolutely other possibilities, but the logical objection took hold a little bit. I couldn't be me. And I came back with great gladness into my situation, into being Rory. Nevertheless, the logic and the whole premise of this experience was that there is a choice involved in being oneself. And also that what one is, is different from what we can call our everyday, our personal, our ego experience being yourself and also not being what you ordinarily experience as yourself, which is also quite possible, are both enjoyable, enlightening experiences. What envisioning or recapitulating a decision to be myself, as you can hear I'm having little trouble deciding how to express and how to think of that experience, did was bring together all the threads of that vision in the kitchen. The feeling of shame, 
the accidents and essentials of my life, the parents I have, the time I was born in, were all being essentially affirmed. Well, all this was enough for now. In retrospect, I'm glad Yage caught up with me when I was alone in the kitchen. No one came in during an experience that I guess was about an hour and a half, because it had been so visceral and so personal. I remember my pure exhilaration and continued disbelief as I left the kitchen and went back to the ceremony room. I actually felt so much exhilaration that despite Luke's instructions that we be quiet during the night so as not to disturb other people's visions, I threw myself down on my part of the mattress and just said, So what's coming next? I clearly remember expecting things to go on being as bright but also as dark as they had been during my visions in the kitchen. And actually I didn't mind because I already trusted that whatever would come would be for the best. But seemingly, if you can allow me to personify it, Yage kindly thought that I had undergone enough darkness that night, and I was treated instead to a sound and light show. Eyes closed, I saw colours coming at me relaxedly, mellowly now, with none of the shock and speed and change they had in the kitchen. I could hear sustained musical notes also sounding. The colours and sounds were in sync, all I had to do to change the colours and help compose this tune was move any of my fingers. And I couldn't go wrong. Whatever I did, the sounds were always sweet and the colours were always beautiful. It sounds so simple that I'm not sure how much I can convey how much fun this was. I was laughing and some of the people I was with noticed this. People say, high-mindedly and truly, that Yage is not a recreational drug that it is to be benefited from spiritually, worked with, as they say, but it would give people the wrong impression if I didn't say that it is also fun. And I was glad to hear Luke say when he was asked what a shaman does for fun, that he does a ceremony. This, my only experience of synesthesia to date, was play. I can't actually remember falling asleep, and it seems to be the case that in Yage, Waking dreams pass into sleeping visions. You maintain a kind of consciousness. Anyway, at some point I did fall asleep, a little earlier than I might have liked, because when it came time, I was determined to remain awake for as long as possible the following night. But according to Luke, the ceremony only ends in the morning, with what he calls the healing. Another part of his function is to bring you down from the high energy of the night. For example, Stripped to the waist, we were sprayed with lemon essence in the morning to separate us from the spirits and entities involved during the night. Lemon juice is like garlic, apparently. It keeps away Draculas, but also more friendly spirits. I can't remember which morning it was, but even despite the extraordinary visions, during one of the healings, I was having some monkey-minded, anxious thoughts, and Luke put his hand at the back of my head for a few seconds, and I'm not sure what he did, but my mind just emptied. The thoughts just disappeared. It was nice, and I wish I could do that for myself more or sometime. Instead, I tried to remind myself of what the Buddhists say about random thoughts, including negative ones, that they are direct expressions of mind's pure, luminous nature. But even if, to this day, I don't always act like it, the entire Yage journey is the biggest demonstration I've had that your thoughts, monkey-minded or inspired, are not you, that lots of what you think of as you are not you, that entirely other stuff lives concurrent with what we recognise as our pains and pleasures.
After that first night, full of the joys of spring, and just kind of going along for the ride, I said yes to doing a liver cleanse. The liver, of course, cleans the blood and receives all sorts of toxins, so the idea here was to clean all that out, and you're supposed to feel like a warrior, as Luke said, after it. Helene made a small foamy drink, the volume of a normal cup, from what is called in the Amazon a kokora seed. Helene and Luke don't know what the botanists call it, or what it's called in English, but apparently the kokora fruit tastes like a mango, but the seed is potentially poisonous, so you drink water after drinking the kokora drink. So we drank the tea made from the kokora seed, and then we started drinking water. I drank a litre of water. The second I stopped to take a breath, Len started saying, drink, 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 drink. And when I stopped for a second after the second litre, again, drink, 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 drink. What was supposed to happen was that you drink a load of water and the kokora seed brew provokes liver bile to come up as part of the water you vomit. By the time I was on litre three or four and still seeing crystalline water coming out of me every minute or so, and Helene was still saying, drink, 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 I knew she was a nasty bitch. The other two lads who did the cleanse both managed to bring up the bile and they both started to feel like a million bucks. When I was on litre five or six and Helene out of nowhere said, this is because you do not express your feelings, I thought, how the hell does she know? And also that she should have been glad that it's true. In the end, my liver cleanse was called off. I was now quietly worried that since I hadn't purged the bile, I was going to be poisoned by the kokora seed, but I didn't say anything. No one else was particularly worried on my behalf. Helene made me some other potion or concoction to end the cleanse, and this, which turned out to be lovely and sweet, I drank at the kitchen table. Everyone else was just chatting and having breakfast now, but despite the heights of the previous night, after my failed bile purge, I felt like a miserable old dog. It wasn't all the water I'd drunk, which had all come back up, or the kokora seed, which as far as I knew wasn't going to kill me. It was an emotional thing. I felt sad. This is because you do not express your feelings. Those words had hit me. The fact of being at the kitchen table, where everything had kicked off for me with such delight a couple of hours before, felt deeply ironic. I was still little me, and I felt sad. The joy and glad insight had been worthless, and I was back to square one. After a while, I just started quietly to cry, and kept crying for quite a while. Everyone was nice, but no one was particularly effusive. They just kept talking and let me get on with my tears at the table. I don't know if the liver cleanse is supposed to sometimes work like that, if this was plan B, but the crying was my cleanse. I started to feel happy again. It was a supernally sunny day, coming not long after the beast from the east. One of the attendees, Malcolm, used the phrase tripping balls about the last night, and the contrast between the exalted spiritual states we'd been in and the no-getting-around-it fact that we were all blitzed on Colombia's very strongest struck me as the funniest thing in the world. I was lolling again. Malcolm, a first-timer like me, had in fact had a very powerful experience. He'd been toying with the idea of going back to college to get a further qualification, a master's, I think. The vision that he had asked him to consider that he would have less time for his wife and two sons who were there that morning, and also that he might not enjoy the work he would qualify for when he got the degree. He was also shown symbols from a particular stream of Buddhism and enough information that he was able to Google it and find out its name. So he had a lot to chew on, and even though he had booked two nights, Malcolm was keen for his wife, Jane, to participate instead of him on the second night, which she did. 
Apparently, they'd both been interested in taking ayahuasca, but had never actually talked about it to each other until Malcolm got the opportunity in just as chancy a way as I did. Another participant, Charlie, had seen octopuses, had actually been forced to look at them up close, to see everything beautiful in them. I just remember that little detail out of all the things that people said that they saw. Because it's the kind of thing Yage does, take something like octopuses are ugly and turn it on its head, make the world stranger, highlight the contradictions. For example, that silly judgement rooted in my worries that I'd stumbled on the sad sax conference had, of course, vanished. I would defy anyone not to feel the greatest solidarity and warmth with people who they'd attended a Yage ceremony with. A couple of people there had very non-mainstream backgrounds, a yoga instructor, an energy healer, and I guess I best I would bet that's the case for lots of ayahuasca retreats. But quietly for me, these are my people. Anyway, very quickly, I just loved everyone there. I'd made no plan for going home or staying a second night, and definitely that Saturday morning, I was thinking I could not do that again for a long, long time. But the extremes of emotion that morning, the misery of the liver cleanse, the tears, the gladness of being after the tears, had taken a lot out of me. Physically, I felt a little weak, but more than that, Going right back to Dublin and resuming the daily grind just felt impossible. So I stuck around for the afternoon, still thinking I'm not doing that again. Some people did go off home, and then Luke, Helene and a couple of people who were staying for another night decided to drive off for coffee and a walk. And just because I was tired, I wanted to stay at the house. As their car went along the driveway, by the way, I was amazed anybody thought they could drive after the previous night, I started to run ahead of the car. In self-conscious imitation of childhood, I wanted to beat the car in the race to the public road. When we all got there and the car stopped, we were all laughing and I was really glad to hear Helen say, You is like a child. Maybe it seems like I'm wandering off the subject of the Yage experience, but it is actually part of it all. The extended after-effects of Yage are to me some of the most interesting. They're also a little easier to talk about. I've since read that one of the avenues of scientific research on psychedelics is to do with their effect on what's called the default mode network, or DMN, which is the brain network activated when thinking about oneself, about other people, while remembering the past or while planning the future. All very adult stuff, and the DMN is what neurobiology more or less recognises as the ego. And what the psychedelics do, say the neurobiologists, is shut down the default mode network. Other beings whose DMN is underdeveloped are animals and children. As has been said, children are tripping all the time. So it makes sense that I'd be racing against the car like a kid. When everyone was gone, I rested for a little while. By now, I was not so much weak as delicate. But there was a commercial Sitka Spruce Forest nearby that I was determined to walk in. The house where we were did have some fields attached, but I didn't really know what belonged to the homeowner, and after all I'd barely met him. I don't know if it sounds like I'm making a mountain out of a molehill here, but while climbing over a steel gate I was afraid of either being shot or told off, but also aware of how ridiculous it was to fear that kind of thing. But I think all those feelings are common enough. For example, my father recently mentioned the risk of scary minor rebuke you run in using somebody else's wheelie bin to dispose of litter, which you kindly pick up on the street, and the slight encouraging yourself you need to do you need to do that. But as I say, what hit me was how ridiculous the whole complex of small scale fear and counter argument you make in your mind to get past that fear what is. 
Anyway, there were of course no problems and I didn't get shot or told off. My walk in the forest was lit by the wisdom Luke and the visions had imparted during the night. Luke had said, the earth gives so much to us. It was brought home to me as more than a platitude that forests are where we get the air we need to live. They need to be looked after for their sake as well as ours. Again, I found myself going, um, it has an effect on the body. And forgive me, I defecated in the forest, which in all sincerity was a giving, as Luke had said the purge was. Suffice it to say, I was taking stock of the earth, which we would all do a bit more of if we had guidance from people living in the Amazonian forests. On the way back to the house, there were two horses in a stable, one extraordinarily timid and the other very stubborn. I wasn't surprised when the homeowner later told me that the timid one had been abandoned by his mother at birth. When I was with him, silly as it might sound, I was trying to communicate some peace and ease to him, just with my mind. Yage will do that, make you open to the idea of wholly mental communication with animals. And then, I wish I was kidding, when I went to the stubborn horse, what I took as confirmation of that possibility of horse whispering, I guess, did happen. I was stroking the horse's nose, and his mouth took a firm grip of my jumper sleeve. I tried to pull it from him a couple of times with no success, but then... Totally silently, with no gestures, I just said, in my mind, to the stubborn horse, when I think now, you'll let go of my sleeve like a good horse. And I waited a few moments, and then thought, now. And he did let go of my sleeve. Coincidence? I think possibly, but not necessarily, and I definitely didn't think so at the time. I was delighted later that afternoon in the kitchen when Helene said, and bear in mind she does Yage a hundred times a year, the horses understand humans so well just for what that's worth. One of the funniest aspects about the weekend is that the homeowner, a reserved but friendly man in his 50s, didn't know anything beyond the very basics about ayahuasca, so he was listening to what must have seemed like a whole load of nonsense at the kitchen table. When I pointed at the plate over the stove and said, it's a mandala, Luke just kept playing his word game and the homeowner's eyes widened in mild disbelief. Everyone who'd been there the night before slept a bit in the late afternoon and early evening. Then a couple of new attendees arrived, all women, and things started to take shape for my second evening. There was talk about what the night would bring. Charlie at one point said with perfect seriousness, we need to smash the system. We were talking about, and meant really, the head system, which produces fears, doing the same old thing again, getting the same results, rationalisations, the cautious course, the world of convention. And we meant it personally, really, but if it happened to enough people, it would have a societal effect. One of the longest lasting effects is the occasional, ongoing reminder of the possibility of experiment, of doing things differently. In time, everyone entered the ceremony room and the door was closed. After the same quietness and aloofness from everyone attending, Luke began to speak. The next day he said that the reason for the quietness is that he's always nervous before a ceremony begins, wishing it will go well for everyone, and he's relieved when it does begin and he starts to enjoy it. Again the speech, the tuning in. Again the hopa the snuff tobacco, little black particles of which I've been blowing out of my nose during the day, by the way. While Luke was talking, I saw what looked to me like an expression of pure terror on the face of a young woman who was with us. I couldn't, inter- I couldn't interrupt, but I felt the strongest sympathy for her. I wondered what was the matter a little. I knew that in this ceremony, at least, there was no cause for terror. We took our cups, 
we received all the blessing, as Luke said. Now that I knew the territory, I was actually much more apprehensive than the previous night. But the beginning was the same. The faint colours, the gentle introduction to another world. But very quickly, Albert, who was lying right beside me, was in great distress. He was talking to everyone around him, including me, in his native Slovak. I felt like I couldn't be much use to him, and while I was wishing for his best, I focused on trying to calm my own developing nausea. Luke came quickly and started to shake his leaves. He sang a medicine song. I wonder now if he directed the purifying energy of the blazing fire to Albert too. Apparently it was doing this spontaneously at someone in distress during a ceremony that had caught the attention of the abuela, the grandmother, who began to think it might be worth training Luke as a Yage man. She had not thought it would ever occur to a European to use this type of magic. Albert later told us that at that moment he'd been attending his own funeral. Ayahuasca, after all, is called the vine of the dead. No one attending the funeral was helping him, which I guess included me lying beside him at that moment. Or maybe I was in a grave myself. And when Luke turned up to help, what he had done was speed up the funeral. And it worked. A couple of minutes later, Albert was past his funeral. In due course, it came time for me to purge. I went out to the old-fashioned iron railings, which surrounded the front lawn or field. You know how it is in country houses. The grass is halfway between being lawn and field. I purged and felt absolutely awful, as though I'd been attacked from within. The kind of puke when you've had too much alcohol, know you're a bloody fool, hate yourself, know it to be fundamentally a moral problem, and also know that you do not love yourself as you should. Like, you know you have a problem, right? So at the end of the purge, I let out the rawest and most primitive yell of my life. This was so long, loud and guttural, yet also so low-pitched, that Albert, who was by now again right as rain, told me to come away from the railings for the sake of the neighbours who were only across the road. The next day, he recommended that I get a Tibetan singing bowl, because I would seemingly make a great Tibetan throat singer, like the ones you see on Grafton Street in Dublin. So it must have been something like this. I know what Luke means when he says that you are also vomiting feelings. I felt like a devil had been ejected from me. Not long after that, I came to be sat at the end of my mattress, quietly stealing myself to take my second cup. I sat there for 10 or 15 minutes, knowing I had to do it, but just allowing the will to crystallise, because there would surely be something tough about the night. When I walked towards Luke's altar, he was smiling broadly as he had not before. He said this thing, which he would say now and then during the night, after banging a drum, rattling the leaves and the other things he did to keep the energy in the room at the right level, to help us all. It sounded something like, Dash! It makes me smile now, because I can't remember precisely what the sound was, but it sounded like something like this Arab name for Isis. 
though I definitely wasn't thinking about that at the time. I guess it's said by the Taitas in the Amazon. Uh, but Luke's smile and saying Dash was the encouragement I needed, and for the first time I knelt to receive the Yage. I had a reverence for its power by now. I knew it would take me somewhere, and to kneel in thanks seemed only natural as I drank. Helen then encouraged me to come to the fire, to think of and thank my ancestors, and after thinking of them, thanking them, and making a wish, I threw a nut into the fire, and then some of us there danced for a while. But think of that, acknowledging one's ancestors. George Orwell wrote, when thinking about planting a tree, that only a great-grandchild would see it in maturity, and who, crazy, and who cares for their great-grandchild? Of course, it was less common to see them in his time. But the reverse is also true. Who cares for their ancestors? Helene, I think, meant, and I was certainly thinking about, the ones lost in the mist of time, who couldn't be known, who've left no trace. Modern people recoil, more or less rightly, I think, from ancestor worship and from the idea certain cultures have that people are only reincarnated into their own tribes. But to acknowledge them and be thankful was a strange but welcome thought. You are here, after all, but also with the parents and genetic inheritance and many other things that you have, because of them. It is not necessary to know anything about them to think of and thank them. When I mentioned once to a friend just in passing that my maternal grandfather had died before I was born, she replied that nevertheless I could talk to him, and I did in due course. But I have needed Helene's and my friend's encouragement even to think of these topics. So if you are all inclined to think along these lines... May this be the encouragement you might be seeking. I went outside to purge, not in the direction of the neighbours this time, but it kept not happening. For a while I talked to a friend of the woman who earlier had the look of terror. It turned out her friend had cancer. It was the birthday of the woman I was talking to, and she'd been invited on a night out in Dublin, but she wasn't going to let her friend do this on her own. So here they were. I got talking to Albert and his relative Jackie. Jackie pointed up at the night sky and said, It's a globe. The world is a globe, and yes, at that moment you could see, because of the stars, the curve in the sky, the ever-expanding sphere arising from our point in the macrocosm. I've since felt, felt since the Age ceremonies that whatever the infinite spaces beyond us are all about, and even if they did turn out to be eternally silent, as the philosopher Blaise Pascal feared, it doesn't frighten me, as he said it did him. If you can begin to be comfortable with parallel dimensions, you can be more or less comfortable with whatever is going on in this one, and not take its vastness as a challenge, but to be at one with it. Jackie left, and all of a sudden I began to feel terrible, truly terrible. These were the most unredeemably terrible few minutes of the weekend. Doubled over, I felt never more alone, even with Albert there and being kind. I wondered what the hell was I doing here, looking at the stone paving in front of the house. Whatever the hell was I doing here? My luck had run out. This was going to be a straightforward, good old-fashioned, bad trip. The next few months would be pain and the memory of pain. Flashbacks. I took it like a stab in the back when Albert quite reasonably said he was going inside. I couldn't have imagined being on my own at that moment. So I joined him. And I never did purge. Maybe those darkest few minutes of the weekend were enough. Part of Yage is that you know yourself to be of the essence of the world. The illusion of separation is removed. For those few moments, all I was was the shit on your shoe. The feeling passed, and the visions came. In an uncanny way, the territory of some of the visions that night was familiar to me. I had encountered it in what I felt at the time was an unusually intense 
and strange dream a couple of months before. It had struck me, stayed with me, but for us normal people what can come of a strange dream? It is an interruption into consciousness of which we can make nothing further and we usually forget it. Here it was again, repeated, expanded, intensified and happening while I was awake. What are dreams and what is the nature of the visions that arise in Yage? The fact of the dreams being repeated could lead a materialist to say that the vision is what they say a dream is, a brain defragmentation, like when a computer is resorting what it contains on its memory drive in order to be more efficient, a bringing forth of irrational connections, the better to be able to inter them more efficiently. Anyway, the dream stuff and the vision stuff would have to be in your head already, is what they would say. And I'm not saying any of that is wrong. No matter how mind-blowing and beyond me it all seemed, to be even to be minimally comprehensible to me, I had to have encountered things that could have been reformulated somehow into the thoughts and feelings that I met that night. Again, all I can say is that I believe something beyond and superintending me, maybe with intermixed elements of the irrational, was showing me things during the dream months before and during the vision that night. Here's how some of that vision went. Odd as it sounds, I was introduced to the idea that something like a game app, a video game, was being rolled out. In some ways, it was like an upgrade to the life and world we know, and it was being rolled out to some people at first and in due course to others. There was a long process of learning how to play. It was difficult to learn. A feature, if you will, was that we could go up a level, go one up, and in due course go up many levels. We could advance in the game. This was represented like in a video game, with an audiovisual celebratory display. It's worth saying that video games were never a big part of my life. I can't imagine I was being shown these ideas this way, because I might have been expected to come to grips with things this way naturally, since, like, as if it was part of my experience normally. In the same way, I never much liked psychedelic art, the colours you see in the work of the artists Alex Gray and Robert Venosa, because it didn't seem feel real and seemed garish. I have to say that now, that whatever I think of their painting, they're depicting real experience and their work has the power to bring things back to me. Anyway, in the game, this game of life of a kind, we were excited for one another if one of us had gone up a level, which was a kind of spiritual advance. We were thrilled, in fact. No matter what stage any of us were at, we all had a knowing that our own personal advances would come at the proper time. Looking back at that from the outside, I would say that in the game there were no spiritual injustices. But inside the game, when I was playing it, it was more that it was a game with rules, and the idea was always to enjoy it no matter whatever was happening. It was not all easy going. We game players were confronted with a kind of challenging force, which I guess we would call evil in our everyday consciousness. The bit of this vision that most touched on my life was some encouragement I got to continue to study and hone my skills in the investigation of state-sponsored terror, which I was given to understand may also end up being useful in other respects too. I feel not embarrassed, but open to teasing about excitedly recounting a vision of something like a video game about a communal project of love and betterment for the world, which by the way also had dragons in boxes and people who looked like Pac-Man and so on. Because it, could because it could seem so flimsy, so ludicrous from the outside. But on the other hand, I mentioned Charlie's vision of octopuses, of seeing them as beautiful, and while I didn't have that, 
I don't think it at all ridiculous. I'm absolutely prepared to grant and believe the depth and true meaning it had and I'm sure it continues to have for him. So having a parallel experience absolutely opens me up to an imaginative sympathy with his vision. And I guess that's what I'd say to anyone too keen to mock or undervalue any of the visions seen in Yage. As I said when introducing the podcast, dimethyltryptamine is a molecule very similar to serotonin, the happiness endorphin. And I guess someone repeating scientific common sense about Yage visions would say, look, you're out of your mind, blissed out, and that's what attaches you to the simple and looked at in cold light of day, generic, platitudinous messages you receive, and the dragons and the other crazy stuff you see, which is just mental candy. And fine, I've got no problem with that. If there was nothing especially new or revelatory about a Yage vision, its value would be in the object lessons it provides, and the way it tears down your defences while delivering these object lessons. The experience of the second night felt way more intense than the first night, which was already the strangest experience of my life. And I gather that this is the way it works. The Yage readies you with milder experiences and lets it get ever more intense in its usual contradictory way, more beautiful, more sublimely challenging. A couple of the people who had experience of Yage before that weekend had very challenging experiences that night. Albert's funeral was only one example. I mentioned paranoia early in the podcast, the fear of having little hopes implanted and then the programme continuing on to disaster. During both nights, I was contending a bit with the idea of the world as a computer programme or simulation. Now previously, if I ever thought about this idea to any extent, which was only to a very small extent, it has induced that mild, manageable, all-in-the-mind paranoia I mentioned. Because as silly as it is, you can't disprove it. And what's more, it's kind of a fashionable idea at the moment, and some kind of techie and scientific people who are not quite thinkers are putting it forward. The astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, the state-aided billionaire Elon Musk. And they seem to kind of almost like this idea. To me, it remains a kind of suboptimal theory. I can accept and welcome mystery, and I do. But the world as programme or simulation is something else. Finally, it's a bit more like a deception. On the other hand, life is so contingent. Life is the, There are so many whys that it's not to be dismissed entirely. You can't dismiss it. There's, it it's, it's there as a doubt, even though I don't believe it. I remember, even, I remember even as a child, and I mean 10 or 12, not 4 or 5, I would sometimes wonder, why do we have bodies and why do we have to walk? Why walking? The fact of physical space was evidently not a good enough answer to these questions, because to the pure thinking in me, it seemed so contingent. We know nothing. Why space? On the other hand, even as I was being confronted with this idea, because of Diage, with, of the, with the idea of the world as simulation or illusion, in both a kind of blissful way in the video game, but also in a more challenging, deceptive, illusory way during other parts of the experience, Diage was also makes you feel, made me feel, like I was known by eternity almost provides an introduction to me, and that contradiction is kind of essential. So I would say that the video game aspect was in line with some kind of current intellectual trends, if you want to call them that. But of course, essentially it was about illusion. It was about what's called the veil of illusion in life. And of course, 
the matter of illusion need not necessarily be approached as a kind of video game. This is the purest speculation, but I recently had the thought that maybe when some Western people took Yage in previous generations, they were brought into visions about what might seem like the cinematic in life, about what might be spooky about that. Cinema was the critical medium for a couple of generations, and it has long been associated with illusion, so that what might have seemed unreal or contingent in life, what might have turned up in the visions, what might have needed reconciling with, would be, for example, the fact that in cinema, a cinema represents us, we're all pitched into events in life from which we can look, which look on the outside like stories, but from on the inside look like catastrophes. Cinematically, we appear to be characters immersed in those stories, while to ourselves, there's always something we're assessed from all that happens dance. But as I say, that's just an idea. Going on about that idea of the life as a video game, or an illusion, or an app. If life was a video game, something to be a, a play in that sense, one thing is, and one thing that I took strongly away from the Yage experience is that there would be no point in taking life seriously. Um, as life was a game um, and you were in some sense being played, it's also true that life is play. And if life is play, that makes you much more freer to take the risks. There was less to fear. There are no wrong decisions, no, no catastrophes. We're a lot freer than we think. And we could use that reminder occasionally. I have to say that in making this podcast, I realised that I've utterly failed in some ways. I can only to be able to recapture the vision of life I was given in its unity and intensity. And I can only remind myself that Yage would forgive the failure. I did actually spend a week in Sligo on my own after the experience, trying, doing little except trying to write down as much as possible about it. I still only managed to get to early in the second night, so that I wish now I could recall more of that game, which went on for hours that night, and involved a lot of learning, a lot of experience. It was fun too, but it's now gone, except for a little bit that's come back while I've been preparing this podcast. Really what's important about Yage for the rest of one's life is the reminder, that reminder to be without fear, that we are really connected with life even when, even when we feel alienated. And I don't mean anything airy-fairy by that. I mean that being connected with life means having power and control in it. Even while I was playing that game on the first night with the sounds and the colours, the synesthesia, using my fingers to make sounds and colours, one of the things I was being shown was the power I had in other aspects of my life. So I sometimes forget feeling powerlessness. Yage teaches that improvements are possible. It teaches optimism. I can't say I live like that all the time, but I'd still say that as a direct result of the experience, I started running again, have lost weight, cut back on drinking alcohol, and have a certain trust that things I'm sometimes in fear of will work out. Sometimes I do also look at all of life as alive. I mean, even stones, minerals, the cars, which is nice. So it's a worthwhile experience. During the second night, I found out by chance, followed by a little experiment, that the visions became less intense, receded a little, if I lay on my side, 
not on my back. And I found this useful because it could get to be more intense than I could handle at times. And then I noticed as the sun started to rise that whenever I looked at Luke on his mattress, he was flat on his back, toes and face pointed to the ceiling. When we were all up later in the morning, I asked him if he did that to be more receptive to the visions, and he just said yes. I guess the idea of being pointed in the direction of the sky to receive the visions is evident, and to me it's intriguing, but I'm not pressing it. So the day started to take shape, the healing happened, the men and women did it separately, and later at the kitchen table I was quite sorry to hear that none of the women there had had any very intense experiences during that night. I know that women having their period don't see visions because of their own energy at that time, uh, which, Luke, which Helene said could be harnessed instead for a moon ceremony. And apparently ayahuasca is not to be taken for w after women are two, two months pregnant and for men after their wife or partner is five months pregnant. But I don't think any of that was relevant. Anyway, seemingly they quite enjoyed having seen the convulsions and craziness of the men. Luke and Helene were going to be there for another night, but by the late afternoon it was getting time for me to go. The homeowner, who'd been aloof from the proceedings of the weekend, started to, get interest on sun started to get interested on Sunday and said that he might participate on the final night, and I don't know if he did or not, but I really hope he did. In due course, after big hugs for everyone there, I got a lift back to Dublin, laughing all the way with my new friend, safe as houses but still not knowing how he wasn't crashing. I got out of the car at Houston Station and walked along uh, the quays and a couple of blocks off the quays also besides the nice Amsterdam-style council flats there and the newer ones, just sampling a relaxed urban Sunday evening. And when I got to the real centre of town, Dame Street, Grafton Street and so on, I just started giving small change to homeless beggars. In one respect, it was the usual story for me. I passed one and thought, I'll do the next one. But then I gave to a couple more. It wasn't out of control at all, although they do say you shouldn't go for a business meeting for the first two weeks after a Yage ceremony. The difference was that all the usual thoughts and feelings weren't there. Thoughts like, it's useless, it's a cop-out, giving money is a cop-out on real action, I'm not cash-rich myself, I'm only doing this out of guilt. All those thoughts just didn't come up, it was just the simple act of glad giving to people. I hadn't really thought of this until I got working on this podcast, but that glad giving as part of the game in the second night's visions. All the players in the game would be really excited by that, really excited for the giver and the receiver. So maybe that vision can begin to make sense to you, being really excited and enthused and not as like it's a supposed to about the things we know we're supposed to do. And knowing the possibilities of the good things we do in life are endless. World is crazier and more of it than we think, incorrigibly plural. I appreciate your listening and I'd be very glad if you could email me to tell me how you normally listen to podcasts, which podcast app or catcher you normally listen on, especially if it's one I'm not currently on. Uh, you can email me at roconnor1985 at gmail.com. I'd be very glad if you subscribe on the mediums I already am on, the Apple Podcasts app and YouTube. Um, you can best find each just by searching for the Rory O'Connor podcast. Uh, also, thanks to my Patreon supporters. Uh, it means a lot. Uh, my plan is to greatly increase the tempo of production. So see you next week on the 10th of October. And I'll leave you with a passage from Emerson's essay, Self-Reliance, which I read while preparing this podcast and does have some of the Yage knowledge and feeling in it without Emerson ever having participated, I'm sure. When good is near you, 
When you have life in yourself, it is not by any known or accustomed way. You shall not discern the footprints of any other. You shall not see the face of man. You shall not hear any name. The way, the thought, the good shall be wholly strange in you. It shall exclude example and experience. In the hour of vision, there is nothing that can be called gratitude, nor properly joy. The soul, raised over passion, beholds identity and eternal causation, perceives the self-existence of truth and right, and calms itself with knowing that all things go well. Vast spaces of nature, the Atlantic Ocean, the South Sea, long intervals of time, years, centuries, are of no account. This which I think and feel underlay every former state of life and circumstances, and what is called life, and what is called death. 